0: You're listening to KPFA, KPF in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. Stay with us for Jennifer Stone with Cover to Cover. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday, happy endings are the rules. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Ah, this is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and yes, it is Black History Month. So many things, so many things to look at. It's a good excuse to review our notes, boys and girls. Yes. Let me begin today. Let me begin with Langston Hughes' poem, Jazzonia. O silver tree, O shining rivers of the soul, In a Harlem cabaret six long-headed jazzers play. A dancing girl whose eyes are bold lifts high a dress Of silken gold, O singing tree, O shining rivers of the soul. Were Eve's eyes in the first garden just a bit too bold, Was Cleopatra gorgeous in a gown of gold? O shining tree, O silver rivers of the soul, In a whirling cabaret, Six long-headed jazzers play. Now, uh, (coughs) that pagan song dates from 1923, yes. Uh, It was when the Harlem Renaissance was just getting started. And, of course, uh, most white folks were reading T.S. Eliot. <laughs> A year before this poem, Jazonia, was published, T.S. Eliot had published The Wasteland. Yes, I teethed on that one. The Wasteland, you know, promised us that the end was near all of our uh, darkest thoughts, you see were coming true. It was closing time in the garden of Western civilization. Slam, bang, door shut, yes. The door to the Rose Garden slammed in our faces. And there was old T.S. Eliot howling over the grave of God. Every English major that I knew believed it, believed that the failure of modern Christianity to meet our spiritual needs, you know, uh, Uh, that that was what it was all about. Yes, T.S. Eliot howling over the grave of God. Now, I think that Langston Hughes and a number of other poets found a way to sing, what could we call that, singing the Lord's song in a foreign land. That is, they brought the Holy Spirit, the truly Holy Spirit, that of the oldest religions, they brought it back to humanity. They brought back uh, uh, black culture. They came up with the only non-European music that we had in this country, you know, jazz. They brought back an African heritage. In the poem, The Tree, yes, the tree is the tree of knowledge, the tree of life, the tree in the garden, the tree of ancient people and ancient wisdom, Power of Eve, in a way. And, of course, the power of soul, what we call soul in black culture. Some people say that they just bypassed modern European culture. I don't think that's quite the way it worked. Uh, I think they used European culture when they wanted to, but what they did was to create the music and the ritual and the poetry that echo and reinvent the old world, uh, I guess we could call it the pagan world, but I I, I think there's more to it than that. Um, they're not just reinventing African civilizations. They're going back to a time before Christianity, uh, what I would call a more reasoning, reasonable time. Those of us who still think that Christianity was one of, one of the mental illnesses, of course, uh, I mustn't say that because I will always get... Letters from wise and intelligent and, uh, deep thinking Christians who know exactly how to use Christianity, uh, for, uh, what is that? Not, not so much as wisdom, but as, uh, what do we call that? A pattern or a formula for living. And it's there in Christianity, in every religion. There's always a good place to look, uh, to find what is needed. We know all that. We know that uh, even the patriarchal religions, even Islam, it just depends on who's practicing it, folks. Yes, it all depends on the dealer. So hard to get these things straight. Uh <laughs> The language is what confuses us. The semantics. I want to take time today to give homage to James Baldwin. I made a list of all my favorite women writers and then I thought no no start with with James Baldwin because he was the one that I think for me was revelation uh of course uh, that led of course to the uh, huge renaissance of black women writers and feminism that came to me in the 70s but James Baldwin was born back in 1924 just about the time that poem, Jazonia, was written by Langston Hughes. Ah. He died in Paris on the first day of December in 1987. Yes, he was born in Harlem, 1924. And I think of him as the link between old Richard Wright and many of the social realist writers of the 30s and 40s, and the black women writers of today. I think of them as the writers who go right to the heart of things. When I was a young student, I imagined that black writers were better Christians than white writers. Of course, when I was young, they were. (laughs) Times change. Today you can get a vitriolic view of black writers and their literary legacy. Uh you can find it in the work of a guy called Stanley Crouch. Stanley Crouch came to me like a blow to the head. I I was so surprised. I uh, uh <laughs> I I remember thinking this can't happen and then I I thought, well I guess it's progress when we can have a guy like this come along, uh in a uh, an issue of the New Republic back in 1987, at the end of uh, Baldwin's life, uh, I read Stanley Crouch, and he writes here, he says, uh, "Much of the Afro-American fiction that was the term in those days, Afro-American fiction, written over the last 25 years derives from a vision set down by James Baldwin." Baldwin described the downtrodden as saintly. Crouch then goes on to state that as a result of James Baldwin's writing, race became an industry. His article is titled "Ant Medea," and it's a frontal attack on Toni Morrison's novel *Beloved*. And while he's at it, he assaults black women writers in general. And I thought, "Oops, here we go. Here we go. Aha." I remember writing in the margin of that article, oh dear, does gender trump race? We argued about that so much in the 80s. Anyway, as I read Crouch's article, uh, I scribbled again in the margin that for black women writers, the leap from being ignored to, to being despised or critiqued seems to spell success. You know, we all know that uh, once you start getting attention, you're going to take some blows to the head. The attacks on Alice Walker were the most petulant, but Crouch's article on Toni Morrison is a temper tantrum. He stamps his feet like a cranky little skin guy. Uh You know, this woman has spun gold from straw, and he's jealous. Anyway, Crouch writes that the novel Beloved is designed to placate sentimental feminist ideology. Uh, It makes sure that the vision of black women as the most scorned and rebuked of victims doesn't weaken. Beloved above all else is a blackface Holocaust novel. It seems to have been written in order to enter American slavery into the big-time martyr Ratings contest, end quote, from Stanley Crouch. <laughs> Crouch the grouch. Well, there are those of us who believe the chattel slavery on this continent and in the Caribbean and uh, right in Latin America as well, all the way up and down, the chattel slavery might just be the winner of the big time martyr contest if that's what we're calling it this season hmm there's a uh, whole shelf of books that i used to use in the good old days um uh about the atlantic slave trade and most of us are familiar with that material now although i i see that it is not really um not really in the schools the way i would have thought it would be by now uh, my favorite book for use with oh high school age students was a book called Black Cargos published long ago by a guy called Daniel Pratt Mannix M-A-N-N-I-X it's published in the early 60's there are more definitive books but that one uh, I, I don't know what it, it just engaged the reader in such a way uh, it's called Black Cargos yes Black gold. Anyway, in his article in the New Republic, Stanley Crouch adds that Tony Morrison, quote, lacks a true sense of the tragic. She perpetually interrupts her narrative with maudlin ideological commercials. Whoops. <laughs> End of quote from Stanley Crouch. I can't help thinking about all those ideological commercials in Richard Wright's 1940 novel of social realism, Native Son. I was thinking the other day, yes, uh, Tolstoy is a bit of an ideologue, too. Uh, he has a great deal of, of uh, uh, what do you call that, overview on war and peace. It is indeed uh, the nature of novelists and writers to tell us uh, how they feel. I'm afraid that critics like Stanley Crouch are just unhappy men descended from that hypothetical figure that Virginia Woolf described in her essay A Room of One's Own yes, Professor von X, that guy who was engaged in writing a monumental work entitled The Mental, Moral, and Physical Inferiority of the Female Sex Virginia Woolf was of opinion that such angry misogynists were perhaps laughed at in their cradles by a pretty girl (laughs) I remember reading not too long ago that uh, when men and women were questioned about their very deepest fears, women would uh, naturally say that they were afraid of being brutalized, raped, killed, that sort of thing. And the deepest fear on the part of the males was the fear of being laughed at. It's funny because I must be rather masculine. I can't think of anything much worse than being laughed at. (laughs) I've been assaulted and it's no fun. I guess, yes, I guess that is Truly a deeper fear. But life and death, well, you know, that's all in the hands of the gods. But being laughed at, what a humiliation. I think, yes, I think it must be my animus. I must have some kind of masculine alter ego. Whatever the reason. Uh, I think that uh, these reactions are often subjective. Um, It's fun, yes, to... What is that? Project onto the opposite sex all the things that uh, (laughs) we don't like about ourselves. Anyway, such guys do not wish to have their existence or their suffering described or defined or rendered into poetry by a woman. They wish to keep their pain to themselves, yes. It's kind of a monomaniacal thing. I remember once, I was so startled, there was a book called Backlash. Uh, by Susan Faluti, in which she described the uh, terrible ways in which men treated women, uh, the backlash to the feminist movement. And some men were upset by this and critiqued her for it. But then Susan turned around and she wrote a book called Stift, in which she described the terrible pain that working class men were suffering under our present socioeconomic system. And the guys were much more upset about that book. They did not want to see themselves as victims. They preferred to see themselves as the oppressors described in the first book, Backlash. This was very interesting to me. I, I remember once comparing, um, uh, war veterans, wounded war veterans suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome, comparing them to battered women. And this of course was taken, uh, <laughs> taken Uh, Very much to heart, and the uh, response I got from the guys was very negative. They did not see themselves in the same class as battered women. Anyway, I want to talk about James Baldwin, because James Baldwin did not keep his pain to himself. Uh, He shared his feelings. He was capable of that intimacy, which women are said to crave, yes. He poured forth his deepest convictions, and they became literature. Baldwin did not deny his pain, nor did he detest or despise women. Some people say that this is because he was homosexual. Perhaps that is so. But just the same, he did not detest women. (laughs) I suppose I'm trying to be funny, but uh, there are so many arguments about the reasons why men uh dread women, let's say, uh, or that some men do, and whether or not heterosexual males or homosexual males find women more irritating. I would be very interested uh to discover which is true, but uh I think probably I think probably it's kind of a uh six of one half a dozen of the other. Anyway, Baldwin not only did not detest women, he did not detest black people nor did he detest himself. That's a neat trick. He says that he did so in the beginning, when he was young, when he was a child. This is called internalized oppression. He believed some of what the white world said about him. Then he thought about it. Baldwin once said he had to live in Paris for nine years in order to be convinced someone could hate him for himself, not for his color. Now, most women know all about internalized oppression, uh, and we could argue uh, for weeks, years, lifetimes about uh, whether race or gender causes the most internalized oppression. Baldwin was, for me, a kind of literary saint, uh, as Stanley Crouch calls him, yes. <laughs> yes, saintly, yes. One of the sources of his sainthood was the downtrodden condition in which he lived as a child in Harlem. Now, we certainly know that suffering does not necessarily ennoble people. Richard Wright illustrated that in his novel Native Son, a story in which racism turns a man into a brute. Just as, perhaps, racism has, in some sense, desensitized Stanley Crouch... In fact, Crouch may be a grouch for neo-racist reasons. (laughs) Here is um, Stanley Crouch quoting James Baldwin to make a point. Uh, Baldwin wrote, I do not mean to be sentimental about suffering. Enough is certainly as good as a feast. But people who cannot suffer can never grow up, can never discover who they are. That man who is forced each day to snatch his manhood, his identity, out of the fire of human cruelty that rages to destroy it, knows if he survives his effort, and even if he does not survive it, knows something about himself and human life that no school on earth, and indeed no church, can teach. He achieves his own authority. And that is unshakable. This is because in order to save his life, he is forced to look beneath appearances, to take nothing for granted, to hear the meaning behind the words. If one is continually surviving the worst that life can bring, one eventually ceases to be controlled by a fear of what life can bring. Whatever it brings must be born. Now, at this level of experience, one's bitterness begins to be palatable. And then hatred becomes too heavy a sack to carry. That's the end of the quote uh, from James Baldwin. It's pretty amazing, and I remember using it uh, when discussing feminism discussing the reasons why, uh, when women are faced with the facts, with the facts of themselves, uh, how they can grow up. Uh, illusion becomes too difficult. Anyway, Baldwin threw down the sack, the sack of bitterness. You remember, Malcolm X wrote that a similar thing happened to him after he visited Mecca. Uh... Malcolm said that uh, he lost his bitterness and he understood uh, the vast nature of brotherhood. Uh, Baldwin embraced the world. He embraced what love there is in it. He never denied the hatred. He studied it, he wrote about it, but he was essentially a religious man whose presence gave off light, what the Zen prophets call the light of infinite compassion. The week that Baldwin died, I remember finding myself suffering. An acute sense of loss. It was a sense of personal loss for time gone by, for that era as well as that man. We called him Jimmy back in the 60s. We being, I suppose, a rather naive handful of black and white liberals who believed that everything was going to work out after the revolution. (laughs) We thought we would all become tea-colored, at least psychologically. James Baldwin was responsible, more than any other writer in the 60s, for my own awakening, my consciousness-raising, if you like. I was sitting in the Café Mediterranean on Telegraph when I heard about Baldwin's death. There was live music coming from the print mint across the street. I had an acute attack of déjà vu, Yes. I remember my mind going back to 1967. We were so sure of ourselves then, full of hope. We lived on hope back then. Hope was the rope we hung ourselves from. I think after Malcolm was killed on this day 41 years ago, many people did begin to give up hope. The deaths of Martin and Malcolm, Kennedy and all of them, uh, Medgar, bit by bit. Uh, it is strange how that era shaped us. Anyway, I had years then as a suburban housewife, um, up to 1966. Baldwin came into my world. Uh, I remember... That when I came back to Berkeley, uh, he was one of the writers I brought with me. He commuted back and forth from France. Uh, Let's see. He left America in 1948. Started becoming uh, an international man, thinker. He was at the intellectual center of a monumental movement that changed American consciousness forever. Uh, that led to the civil rights movement, to the women's movement, and even to the tragedy we're living in today. I'll never forget Baldwin's first appearances on television, his vivacity, his uh, electric intelligence. Ah. Baldwin once said his father told him he was the ugliest child he'd ever seen. He thought about that came to the conclusion that nobody knows what a writer looks like, so he decided he would be a writer. He felt that perhaps he would not be loved for himself, right? We express our love at one remove, writers, between the pages of books or behind a microphone, right? The soul of James Baldwin was easy to see, even on the TV. There were these diverse reactions to him, when he appeared on mass media. (laughs) So many Americans were startled or afraid of him. He blew our minds when he wrote that racism has something to do with our fear of death. Today we know that this applies to sexism as well. Deep down in our reptilian brain stem, there is an antipathy to that which is different from ourselves. I call this the... uh, Condition of otherism, whether it's the black, the Jew, the woman, anyone who is other, alien, in a psychotic individual, this paranoid ideation is acted out. Uh, this is uh, recently, uh, we see this acted out so much uh, in the gay community, the murders uh, on a national or world level. Uh, it leads to the Hitlers, the monsters of the world. Uh, there's a poetic point of view that this is a rejected part of ourselves, this other. A lost part of our own souls or a part of ourselves we wish to drive out. When I first read Baldwin, I felt this instant recognition... Uh, place of my own yes piece of my own soul that I had lost if you want to take a look at Baldwin start with that wonderful little autobiography go tell it on the mountain I was looking at it last night to find something to read to you and uh I think I will try to do that soon um it's uh, It particularly deals with the problem of uh, uh, Baldwin and his father. And I just uh, love it because, as we know today, the father-son situation is pretty interesting, psychologically speaking. I keep writing in the margins of books. It's the psychology, stupid. It's the psychology. <laughs> Never mind. Uh Anyway, Baldwin did not believe that our battles could be won by becoming masters. He did not wish to join the oppressors. Toni Morrison was at Baldwin's memorial service, and she said that he had a vulnerability that asked everything. Then she went on to describe his tenderness, saying that it resembled the first turning in the womb, that it felt like a whisper in a crowded place. Now I quote Toni Morrison, she said... I suppose that is why I was always a little bit better behaved when I was around you, wanting to deserve your love. How I loved your love. Now, I want to talk some more about Baldwin, but my time is up. So I will be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. This has been Jennifer Stone. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Light Light 'em up, boys! There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of. This is Free Speech Radio News. It's Tuesday, February 21, 2006. From the studios of KPFK in Los Angeles, I'm Aura Bogado. On Capitol Hill,